1: In 10 weeks of war, Vladimir Putin hasn't been afraid to rattle the nuclear sabre. On the day he invaded Ukraine, he issued a warning to the world. No matter who tries to stand in our way, he said, they must know that Russia will respond immediately and the consequences will be such as you've never seen in your entire history.
0: Three
1: days later, he ordered Russia's nuclear forces to be combat ready. The threat has loomed large throughout the conflict,
0: Last
1: week, Russian state owned television even broadcast a simulation of a warhead wiping Britain and Ireland
0: off the map.
1: In response, Western leaders have sought to dial down their rhetoric. No one should be making idle comments about the use of nuclear weapons or the possibility of the use of that. It's irresponsible.
0: I think. The discussion of the use of nuclear weapons is a distraction, and it's intended to be a distraction from what is really going on. NATO is there to protect and defend all allies, and we convey a very clear message to Russia that the nuclear war cannot be won and should never be fought.
1: But for all the attempts to cool the atomic cauldron the risk of nuclear war is greater than it's been for more than half a century. This is The Economist Asks. I'm Ann McElvoy and this week we're asking, could the Ukraine war turn nuclear? My guest is the arms control expert, Rose Gottemmoller. During her diplomatic career with the US government, Gottemmoller worked on denuclearization and non-proliferation in the newly independent former Soviet states, including Ukraine. In 2009, she forged the New START Treaty, the Nuclear Arms Reduction Pact, signed by the US and Russia, and she served as Undersecretary for Arms Control in Barack Obama's administration. By 2016, Gotomola had joined NATO as deputy secretary general, the first woman to do so, and she held the post until 2019. Rose Gotomola, welcome to the Economist asks.
0: Thank you so much for having me.
1: You now it's been 10 weeks since Vladimir Putin invaded Ukraine. The Russian armies failed to take as much ground as it clearly expected. It's focusing attacks on the east and US intelligence which has been pretty accurate to date in this conflict, has warned that Russia is preparing to hold sham referendums to annex the regions of Donetsk and Luhansk this month. How should the West respond? How far should it go in that scenario?
0: I think that the West will be ready to respond, and uh, they will do so sharply by condemning this sham set of referendums, and no doubt also by continuing to post new sanctions against Russia. I think that will be unquestioned. This is the Vladimir Putin playbook from back in 2014. When Crimea was annexed, they immediately proceeded with a sham referendum. So we have seen this movie before, but that's doubly the reason why the West will be ready with condemnation and further steps, including further sanctions.
1: President Biden has just asked Congress to approve a $33 billion package in military, economic and humanitarian funding for Ukraine, about twice as much as the US has spent on assistance already. Is that an indication that the Biden administration is arming Ukraine for a long haul and that it believes that Ukraine can win the war? So that story that we heard early on about maybe looking for deals, for off ramps, for long ceasefires is essentially off the table. We are now going into a situation where America is arming Ukraine for the
0: long conflict. First of all, I think the United States will continue to look for ways to get back to the diplomatic table, will continue to look for ways to really put in place an abiding ceasefire, if only for the humanitarian purposes, to be able to ensure that people can be evacuated. But uh, at the same time, the message of President Biden last week was we are ready to support Ukraine, even if this war should go long. And that means a significant investment of U.S. resources. That's the message of the 33 billion, that if this war does take a long time, the United States and its allies are prepared to support for the long haul.
1: The new phase of the war is twinned with more nuclear saber rattling from the Russian side. Mr. Putin has warned that any country which tries to intervene will face, as he put it, a lightning fast response and said, Russia has all the tools no one else can can boast of. We will use them if necessary. That was interpreted as a reference to nuclear weapons. How seriously do you take this threat?
0: Anything to do with nuclear weapons, I always take seriously. But once again, we have seen this movie before. Back in 2014, Vladimir Putin rattled the nuclear saber at the time of his seizure of Crimea. It's extraordinarily irresponsible. But I will say two things. First of all, the United States has taken note that the Russians have not really raised the operational readiness of their nuclear forces, either their so-called strategic forces or the non-strategic, shorter-range capabilities that they have, and, and which in theory would be used in a Ukraine situation. So the readiness has not been raised. And furthermore, the United States is doing everything it can do to ensure that nuclear escalation is just not in the cards. They have taken steps, for example, to cancel their ICBM test that was uh, regularly scheduled. This is a test of an intercontinental ballistic missile. And the United States has also been very careful uh, to keep the rhetoric toned down. So I do expect uh, that those kinds of steps will continue to be taken on the U.S. side to prevent any escalation. People are a little confused or often have different views on what they think
1: the nuclear threat actually is here. We talk about tactical nuclear weapons, i.e. those intended to be used on the battlefield as opposed to those long-range strategic nuclear weapons. What is the scale of damage that you think that Russia might be expected to wreak if, heaven forbid, did use a nuclear
0: weapon? There are several scenarios out there that have been considered. One would not cause theoretically any loss of life. It's called a demonstration strike if Russia wanted to explode a nuclear weapon in a broad ocean area, for example, and uh, makes a point to try to terrify not only the Ukrainians, but the rest of the world, uh, that they are ready to use nuclear weapons. In the case of smaller nuclear weapon use, uh, for example, on Ukrainian soil, This is a global horror that would be placed squarely on Russia's shoulders because these are weapons of mass destruction. They do cause death and destruction, as well as abiding radiation poisoning in the area, radiation contamination. And honestly, that's why this loose talk of using a non-strategic or tactical nuclear weapon in Ukraine seems to me so so irresponsible because that kind of radiation contamination could readily spread to Russian territory as well.
1: And what should the West's response be? And how strongly should the West signal how it would respond in that eventuality? Because w- one line of argument, to be very clear that the West in many ways is very well equipped for that, but that takes you into the potential of a broader nuclear conflict. And as you can imagine, people respond with horror and fear and it often changes their calculation about the way they look at this conflict.
0: I think the United States has been very clear that it would respond very sharply. The president's been clear that the United States itself would not be responsible for nuclear escalation. The United States does have many response tools, and has been clear it would use them in the cyber realm, potentially in the conventional realm. But I think it's important also to note again the kind of moral criticism that the Russian Federation would come in for. The United States has borne the responsibility for the use of nuclear weapons in wartime, the only use, in Hiroshima and Nagasaki in 1945. This moral responsibility would shift squarely to the Russian Federation in the case uh, of a use in this conflict in Ukraine, and Russia would go forward with that kind of stain and burden Russia is a prior state at the moment, but it would be signaling its readiness to be in that state for a long time to come.
1: To what extent do you see this as a coercive diplomacy, really intended to split public opinion. I've just come back from Germany. Whereas, as you know, the sort of state of the argument about the Ukraine conflict is perhaps rather different to the way it is in large parts of America, the bipartisanship that's been very welcome there, or in the UK, which has set itself as a very strong ally uh, of Ukraine and President Zelensky. I think in Germany, there is very much a, a worry if you take this threat of nuclear use Seriously, that the West should perhaps calibrate its response not to drive in that direction. Do you think that that's exactly what the Kremlin
0: wants? The Kremlin is always looking for ways to divide the NATO alliance, to divide the United States from its allies in Europe. That is what has been so remarkable about this current crisis is Vladimir Putin has had precisely the opposite effect. He's driven the NATO alliance to the greatest coherence that I have ever seen. So no, I don't actually see uh, a differential emerging over this issue. I think everyone is joined together in their horrified response to this nuclear saber rattling. And to make it clear, there will be no impunity here for Vladimir Putin and his cohort. Perhaps you were a
1: little bit more optimistic about the cohesion in the West than I am for the following reason. I, th- I think there is an argument about, and it's heard very much in Berlin, is, is this a conflict in which one side has to lose, i.e. Russia, and Ukraine has to win? Is something we said very strongly on a cover a little while ago, that Ukraine had to clearly win this conflict. For others, including the leader of the German opposition, says you shouldn't talk in terms of winning and losing, just stopping the war. So I wonder whether the, that nuclear angle actually is causing, what you could call a soft fraying of the consensus, even though, of course, the major democracies are aligned against Vladimir Putin.
0: I think what we're seeing now is a recognition that if Vladimir Putin is not dealt a decisive blow in this conflict, then he could be ready to threaten even the NATO allies, those bordering Russia in the Baltic states or NATO partners uh, such as Moldova, who already are feeling that Russia could be on the march in their direction. So I think that is the reason for this firm talk now. But how one defines winning is another thing altogether, a stable ceasefire, the Russian withdrawal of troops to their main operating bases, an effort to begin the reconstruction of Ukraine. This could be seen as a good win, But it's going to be up to the Ukrainians what they decide to do about the continuing disagreement over Donetsk and Luhansk, those territories which have been in uh, Russian hands effectively since 2014, and Crimea. So I think, again, it's going to be up to the Ukrainians to define what victory means in that case
1: you were the first woman to negotiate a nuclear arms control deal with Russia? That was the new start treaty signed in two thousand ten and a long road to it. Take us inside the world of nuclear diplomacy if you could. What's your philosophical sort of template for negotiating with the Russians on this question?
0: I always started and will start uh, in any negotiation from the core principle that the United States must see the negotiation and its outcome to be valuable to its national security. It must be in the interest of the United States and its allies. So that is uh, the first point. But then one must also look for mutual advantage. No negotiation is successful if it's a zero-sum game. So one must look also for ways in which uh, the counterpart at the negotiating table would derive security advantage from the negotiation. Back in 2009, when we were negotiating, we had, I would say, some very clear mutual interest to serve. We wanted to replace the START treaty, the first strategic arms reduction treaty that went out of force in December of 2009. And we both wanted to ensure that we had that kind of predictability going forward about our nuclear force postures. Today, this is a small ray of light, I would say, in the current crisis that the Russians continue to implement the new START treaty. So we continue to have predictability about their force posture. I mentioned a while ago that We know that they are not going to higher levels of operational readiness, for example. Part of that is an effect of having the New START Treaty in force, where they're constantly informing us about the stature of their individual nuclear weapons systems.
1: Do you get a sense that there is potential division between those kind of people you would have encountered or been dealing with who were negotiating the strategic picture on Russia and its nuclear capability and those who are in charge of running this war day to day? I mean, what position do you expect the military to be taking on this threat?
0: I think it's very important that the Russian military are, I would say, in the cases I know about on the nuclear side, extraordinarily well-trained professionals, the strategic rocket forces, the long-range aviation, the nuclear navy they all take their responsibilities extraordinarily seriously to ensure that their nuclear force posture remains safe, secure, and effective. And that means safe also from accidental use. I cannot say uh, what their point of view would be should they suddenly be ordered from the Kremlin to launch an attack against the United States. But I will take note of the fact that the Russians do have a kind of dual key system where it's not the single suitcase that's in the hands of of the Kremlin leadership, Vladimir Putin and his staff, but they also have a key that is in the hands of the military leadership. So again, I can't predict how they would behave in some kind of nuclear crisis, but I do note that historically they have been responsible, well-trained, and well-understanding the destructive power of the weapons in their care.
1: It does raise the question of whether Ukraine should have, in a nuclear sense, disarmed. Do you think that that push in the 90s and beyond to draw down nukes in in Ukraine, which seemed at that point like a sensible part of this big anti-proliferation push, was in retrospect a mistake and has left Ukraine more exposed?
0: I have to say that I worked on those negotiations and was quite committed and convinced that it was the right thing to do from a proliferation perspective. And I will just say, I believe that to this day, because there would, in my view, have been an earlier conflict between Russia and Ukraine, and it could have been an earlier conflict involving nuclear weapons. Instead, thanks to the denuclearization steps that Ukraine took in the mid-1990s, They have ended up with nearly 30 years of peace and stability. Granted, the seizure of Crimea in 2014 began to upend that, but they did end up with a significant period, two decades long, in which they could build themselves up as an independent sovereign state and one that is really looking seriously at European Union membership and vice versa. That was the whole point we made to them in 1993 and 1994, that their success on the global stage as an independent and sovereign state did not depend on nuclear weapons. It depended on their ability to work successfully in the global economic and political system, and they've shown themselves capable of doing that. There's no buyer's
1: remorse at all, which would be perfectly reasonable because we can't always see into the future. I mean, there are those who feel very strongly that Ukraine would be in a better negotiating position now if it did still have a nuclear capacity.
0: Oh, of course there are. That's the easy answer, Anne. But in uh, my view, and I remain convinced that, uh, in fact, we would have ended up with an earlier conflict between Russia and Ukraine. It could have gone to the ultimate level of violence, to nuclear use, and Ukraine would have seen its establishment as an independent and sovereign state seriously interrupted So I am happy to see them where they are today, fighting for their lives, of course, but doing so in a coherent way with a very strong leader in President Zelensky and a government that has really come together around the necessity of winning this fight.
1: From 2016, for the next three years, you served as NATO's Deputy Secretary General, alongside Jens Stoltenberg, who still leads the organisation. One can say he's really through thick and and thin. How do you assess NATO's performance during the, the conflict in Ukraine? You've said adaptability is the key to its success, but it has come under quite a lot of criticism, I suppose, in the last few years for not being very focused, for perhaps not having a an operating manual to make clear to member states what is expected of them. Is that fair?
0: Well, since 2014, many NATO members have said it's high time to refurbish the NATO strategic concept, which was last agreed in 2011-12 timeframe. And at that point, the tagline was that Europe is at peace, and there are no threats to it, and Russia is a friend. Those were some of the basic messages of the earlier strategic concepts. So it was understood that it was high time for NATO to refurbish the strategic concept. But I have to say that the reaction to 2014 and the seizure of Crimea was a pragmatic and a successful one. NATO immediately recognized that it needed to take military steps to put battle groups on the borders with Russia to ensure that Russia knew if it uh, stepped over that border, it would be facing the entire NATO alliance. So units from across the alliance are deployed in the Baltic states and in Poland and now also will be in Romania and Bulgaria. NATO also at that time, after 2014, took steps to renew its ability to reinforce troops in Europe, bringing troops from the United States and Canada across the ocean. So 2014 was the short, sharp shock that drove a lot of pragmatic military action. That's the adaptability that counts. It's good now that NATO is looking at renewing its strategic concept for the Madrid summit coming up in June. But the most important thing after 2014 was to adapt in a military sense. I was talking to a strategist
1: called Ian Kearns here in in the UK, I think it takes a slightly different view to your analysis of the kind of risks that NATO would be running here. He says we need to avoid escalation of objectives. Everyone focuses on escalation of means, but the escalation of objectives in a superpower crisis can be just as dangerous. And I suppose the kind of lay version of that is, are we absolutely sure what the objectives are here? And are all NATO members really singing from the same
0: I look at practical effect. And when the day comes when NATO member states are no longer giving their all in terms of the provision of both humanitarian assistance and military assistance to Ukraine and when they are beginning to pull back from their willingness to impose very strong and tough sanctions on Russia. When we see that kind of division emerging in NATO, then I think that we will have the beginning of a dangerous situation. But I don't see it at the moment. And Honestly, I do believe that President Biden's message last week of the necessity of being together for the long haul was an important one and one that the NATO allies heard. So, of course, there are going to be different points of view about what the diplomatic steps should be now. And I do hope to see a renewal of diplomatic efforts because they have uh, gone on the back burner, I would say, in the last few weeks. We need to get back to the negotiating table.
1: Last thought from you, and I'm afraid I am going to ask you to gaze impossibly into the future. How do you think the war in Ukraine will come to an end? And when you lie there and wish Ukraine the best as you're thinking about this before you go to sleep, do you think I will still be lying here thinking about this in a year? in three years, five years, what's the time
0: horizon? I hope I won't be thinking about it in five years, but I do think that we are going to see some months ahead of very difficult continuing conflict, and I hope, again, a renewal of negotiation. So to my mind, the good outcome at the moment is the removal of Russian troops to their main operating bases. I think the Ministry of Defence would probably welcome that. They had those troops sitting on the borders of Ukraine for... Four, six months before this conflict began, it's not been good for their readiness, for their ability to maintain their equipment. So they need to get back to their main operating bases and uh, lick their wounds, so to say. The second thing must be uh, the stable ceasefire in order to ensure that Ukraine can begin to reconstruct. Now, what happens in Donetsk and Luhansk and Crimea with those territories and the territories that Russia has been able to seize uh, with great expenditure of of blood and treasure. We will have to see what the Zelensky government decides to do about that. I foresee uh, a lengthy negotiation perhaps being established that may take a generation to unwind the territorial disputes going on. But let's not forget Putin will not be in the Kremlin forever. And perhaps his successor will want to see some solutions here where he does not. For those who listen to this show and engage with us
1: and often come now very much with their question at front of mind, are we on
0: the brink of a nuclear war? What's your answer? My answer is no. I think there will be everything done, not only in Washington but in capitals across the world from preventing that from happening. And let's not forget the influence of the Chinese here. There's been a delicate balancing act. Xi Jinping does not want to completely alienate his pal, Vladimir Putin. But I do think that capitals across the world, including Beijing, are doing everything they can to push back against the notion of nuclear escalation.
1: Rose Gautamuller, thank you very much indeed for joining us.
0: You are so welcome.
1: And do let us know what you think. Does the threat of nuclear attack change how you would respond to the Ukraine crisis? Or should the West stand firm in the face of coercive diplomacy from Moscow? Write to us at podcast.economist.com or you can tweet us at The Economist. President Biden wants to give Ukraine more weapons and military assistance. But can America's arms industry respond to the demand? That's a question The Economist has been looking into this week, as well as what could be done to improve defense production. To read that, along with all of our coverage of the conflict and its ramifications, visit economist.com Ukraine crisis. Of course, we'd love it if you became a subscriber today so you don't miss out on any of our superb journalism. For your best introductory offer, go to economist.com slash podcast offer. The link is in the show notes. My producer is Alicia Burrell and the executive producer is Hannah Marino. I'm Anne McElvoy and in London, this is The Economist.